This podcast episode was generously funded by two anonymous donors. If you would like to support the podcast in similar ways, please contact Hadley Kelly at hkelly at pbk.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. I'm Fred Lawrence, Secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. On our podcast, we welcome leading thinkers, visionaries, and artists who shape our collective understanding of some of today's most pressing and consequential matters. Most of them are Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholars who travel the country for us, visiting campuses and presenting free public lectures that we invite you to attend. For the full Visiting Scholar schedule, please visit pbk.org. Today, we're doing something a little different. This episode was taped live in Washington, D.C. on December 6, 2019 at the Phi Beta Kappa Annual Book Awards Dinner. We are clearly feeling the missed presence of my colleague and predecessor, John Churchill the Ninth. Secretary, I like to remind people that more people have walked on the moon than been secretary of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. <laughs> now, if you want to know what really makes a Phi Beta, I, I said that one time at an induction ceremony that you know I'm the 10th secretary, more people have walked on the moon than been secretary of Phi Beta Kappa, and a young woman in the front row pulls out an iPhone and starts to fact check me. <laughs> so I caught her eye and I said, uh, I'm the 10th secretary, 12 people have walked on the moon. She smiles at me, she goes back to her iPhone. (laughs) And then about 30 seconds later, I get one of these, right? The thumbs up that says, okay, you're all right, you know? All all that was missing was for her to say, okay, boomer. Um, (laughs) Which I felt coming. But there's a special bond uh, among the 10 of us, and I think we do, uh, Ken Green, the only other one of the 10 uh, still with us, Ken Green and I, uh, do feel an affinity uh, with the five uh, undergraduates at the College of William & Mary who gathered in the Raleigh Tavern in the Apollo Room 243 years ago last night, December 5th. So if you feel that spirit, um, you know, we do that sort of thing here at Phi Beta Kappa. Um, And the fact that there they were at the early days of a revolution that they had no idea how it was gonna come out. And they had every reason to fear what the results might be. And they had every reason to think that some of them would suffer violence, and they weren't wrong. About five years after they founded that chapter at William and Mary, the British occupied Williamsburg and burned it to the ground, along with all the records of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. So had they not decided to go up the Boston Post Road and open chapters at Yale and then at Harvard, Yeah, we'd like to remind them, Yale and then Harvard. (laughs) That's the last Harvard-Yale line of the night, except for the fact that Yale did win in overtime this year, I'm just saying. (laughs) Double overtime, thank you. Had they not started those two new chapters, we'd all be someplace else tonight. There'd be no Phi Beta Kappa Society. It's a remarkable belief in something bigger than themselves that they had, which connects to where we are tonight maintaining the highest academic and intellectual 
standards. That's our work every day. And it explains why when we get together and celebrate, how do we cut loose? We have a book award event. <laughs> The Phi Beta Kappa Book Awards are given annually to three outstanding scholarly books published in the United States, and we welcome this year's winners in a lively discussion about their works that cover topics from literary criticism to science to history. The Christian Gauss Award recognizes outstanding books in the field of literary scholarship or criticism. This year, the award went to Imani Perry, the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University for her book, Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry. What I was trying to do in telling Lorraine's story, as opposed to that cradle-to-grave, conventional, kind of biographical form with all of the details, I wanted to capture to the essence of her personality, her character, her intellect, her desires, who she was. The Phi Beta Kappa Award in Science encourages literate and scholarly interpretations of the physical and biological sciences and mathematics. This year's award went to Adam Frank, co-founder of 13.7, the Cosmos and Culture blog for NPR, and a regular contributor to All Things Considered, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, to name just a few. His award-winning book is called Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds, and the Fate of the Earth. The beauty of looking at other worlds, right? There are 10 billion trillion planets in the right place for life to form in the universe. So the idea that we're the first time this has happened, it's like you got to really think that nature is perversely biased against civilizations. So this story's happened before. The Ralph Waldo Emerson Award recognizes studies that contribute significantly to historical, philosophical, or religious interpretations of the human condition. This year's award went to Sarah Igo, the Andrew Jackson Professor of History and Director of the Program in American Studies at Vanderbilt University for her book, The Known Citizen, A History of Privacy in Modern America. My book came out, I think it was the same week or right around uh, the same moment as Cambridge Analytica broke. <laughs> and people kept saying, what a timely book, you know, but it wasn't timely at all. I had been working on the book uh, for nearly a decade, really. For a full list of past award winners, please visit pbk.org backslash awards. So I hope everybody has had a nice evening so far. Everybody having fun? Okay. So those of you who submitted questions, thank you. I will try to get to as many as I can. I've got a few things I want to start us with. And apparently the challenge is to see the common threads among our three books, which seems so obvious to me. I can't imagine what the... <laughs> what the concern is. So here's a, here's a place to, to start. To a certain extent, it seems to me that all, all writing, scholarship very much included, cannot help but be somewhat autobiographical. Uh, we reveal a great deal of ourselves in our work. Uh, Imani, you obviously uh, in some ways do, th do that um, most uh, openly in, in this book, uh, what you describe as third-person memoir. So I, I do want you to share with us a little bit about what a third-person memoir means. But Sarah, your interest in privacy does not strike the reader as solely an academic interest. It's coming from a deep place. And uh, goodness knows, Adam, you've been looking for little men in, in the sky, <laughs> stars for a long time. So, so uh, one, one, could, one could talk about these three books as as major academic enterprises, and they are. Um, but I'd like you to, to share, each of you, if you would, the autobiographical piece 
that is consciously or maybe unconsciously revealed through the work. So our third person memoirist seems to me to be the right place to start. Okay. Well, let me say first, the third person memoir, what I was trying to do in telling Lorraine's story as opposed to that conventional kind of cradle to grave biographical form with all of the details I wanted to capture. So the essence of her personality, her character, her intellect, her desires, who she was, and to distill out of these thousands of pages that I had to recount her life, who she was. And part of what drew me to her were these similarities. I mean, one is the more kind of self-indulgent piece, which is that she was kind of a voracious reader who was curious about everything and wanted to do everything. And I kind of identified with that. Kind of saw yourself in that. Yeah. And I, it helped me be a little bit more gracious with myself, but also, you know, her relationship to the Deep South, her relationship to Chicago, where I had spent a, a lot of time being a black woman who had a very close relationship to she married um, a Jewish American man who was a leftist, who was like my adoptive father in many ways. And so this kind of relationship between roots in the Deep South and the kind of leftist Jewish tradition and kind of living a life of the mind and seeing her as a muse, but also as someone who was kind of running into a thousand different directions at, at once and was kind of self-deprecating and thought that was funny. All of that resonated. And, and, and how much of that did you know that brought you to the project and how much of that did you discover in the project? Oh, that's an interesting question. Some of it I knew. I mean, in terms of her political um, identity, I knew very well, in part because she was one of my father's role models. I did not know the breadth of her intellectual life, nor the depth. And that was one of the most exciting things about getting in the archive. And it was really great to see all of these books. And I was like, yes, I understand why you read that book, you know, as I was, I was digging through her, um, her, her pages and the way her relationship to reading and her relationship to W.B. Du Bois, I didn't have a sense of the depth of that or Paul Robeson, all of these figures. So it was a lot of discovery. You know, we often read the words that people say or read the words that people wrote, but we need to read the words that people read, read absolutely. to really understand who, who they are, right? So what's with this privacy stuff? Like, um, were, were you one of those kids who didn't share? Is that... Uh, <laughs> I actually consider myself not to be someone who has been very concerned at a deep personal level with privacy. And actually, I think my interest in privacy was as much um, intellectual as it was personal, although I'm sure there's something personal behind it, that the intellectual interest was in just a fascination with how we change our minds about things. And, and maybe that's biographical as someone who was raised in a particular way and, and college and academic life and uh, uh, books really changed my mind about some of those things. But I think I became an intellectual historian because I was curious about uh, how people did change their minds about things that seem essential and uh, eternal and fundamental, like privacy, um, that uh, in fact, uh, if you're a historian, you recognize uh, our ideas about those things change and change in really radical ways, but in ways that we can't always recognize. And so the beauty of a topic like privacy, and it was actually more normality in my first book, was that it was to so many people such an important and fundamental concept, and yet it was, you could place it historically and situate it historically. So I realize I'm not really answering your question, but I'm going to take the privilege <laughs> totally as a privacy right. scholar no, of doing that. <laughs> you've, you've told me everything I needed to know about, <laughs> about you and, and privacy. So 
Adam, were you, at, <laughs> you at the confess? age of five, were you <laughs> glancing up at the stars and thinking there must be other intelligent beings up there? And I got to uh, write about that someday? Well, autobiographically, I, so I grew up in uh, industrial New Jersey, um, and I was the only Jewish kid in the entire town. And it was, you know, uh, very Roman Catholic, Irish, and Italian. And, you know, it was, it was difficult. Uh, my stepfather was uh, the first African-American state senator, was a civil rights mm. leader. So, like, there was, you know, just a giant target on my back from early <laughs> on. And the value of other worlds, you know, so I fell in love. I fell in love with astronomy because my dad had science fiction books. He had all, like, you know, Amazing Worlds, Isaac Asimov's. And I'd go, I remember as a as vivid image of when I was five years old, looking at the covers of those magazines and, you know, the pictures of the astronauts and their missional entire. Uh, suits bouncing you know on the moon and it was just it was so thrilling and it was an alternative to the crappy experiences i was having uh you know in grade school so the value of other worlds right the value and i think and then you know the other autobiographical pieces i took a year and a half off after between undergraduate and graduate and i worked in new york city doing like i was the bouncer at the rocky horror picture show on 8th street oh, did a lot wow. of a lot of weird jobs. <laughs> but then I ended up at the Goddard. This is 1980. We're going to learn something about privacy from you. I can <laughs> yeah. Say. Yeah. One of our jobs was to sweep the bathrooms. You're like, oh, okay, whatever, man. It's good. Um, and, uh, but the job I finally got was at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which is this NASA installation on 113th Street above the uh, diner that's in Seinfeld. Like, who knew there was a NASA? And it was, it was the place where the first climate models, some of the first climate models were done. And I got you know, hired to do like basic computer programming. And I remember asking the, one day after being there for a month, asking my boss, like, what are we doing here? And she sat me down. This was 85. And explained to me, like, well, we think the climate is changing. We don't really know yet. We're waiting for the signal, which for them was the temperature appearing above the background. And here's what's going to happen. <laughs> I remember like, Walking out of there, I'm, you know, 22 years old and walking down Riverside uh, Park and just being like, oh, my God, the world's going <laughs> to yeah. So it was like, you know, I wa- and I've watched, so I've been interested in climate science and I, you know, watch the reaction to it. And for me, still the same principle holds of the value of other worlds that there's, you know, we need to understand. For me, there are these two stories of thinking about other civilizations, thinking about what's happening to our civilization right now and realizing we're at a point in, in our development, our intellectual development to understand that actually those two stories are the same story, you know, and, and that it's going to help. Right. Because this is the problem. We have this problem of like, how do we deal with this issue? There's a lot of despair, but recognizing like, oh, we're not the first, you know, this has happened before. And so, you know, what can we learn even just by thinking about it if we don't have data yet? So Sarah said for me, the challenge is to see the common themes among your books. So let me let me try this one and we'll, we'll come back in, in reverse order this time. I'll start with uh, start with Adam. I mean, it was good enough for God to start with Adam, so I think it's... <laughs> Max. That's pretty good. <laughs> what are you saying? Are you sort of like... <laughs> I'm just yeah, yeah. a country lawyer asking questions, right? Um, one of the things that is striking about all three books, I think, um, is that each of you is dealing with an issue of, of extraordinary immediacy. Um, I mean, climate change certainly is, is one of you know, the top issues that people are concerned with. Uh, privacy and the whole nature of what does it mean to be a, a person? Can we be private in any way? Can we keep ourselves private? Um, Imani, your book, um, replete with issues of, uh, of, of, uh, of an early LGBTQ 
world that barely has the vocabulary for it, uh, but what that means today. And of course, you end in this extraordinary, compelling scene, sort of coming upon uh, Lorraine Hansberry's grave in 2017, right? So we're there with you in the, in the present. And yet, uh, what you all do is you ground that uh, pretty far back. Now, I mean, obviously, uh, with Hansberry, you, you can't ground it that much further back, but it's the 40s and 50s and 60s in the world that she is in. Um, the notion of privacy, uh, Sarah, you take us all the way back to the late uh, 19th century and the beginning of those notions. And, and Adam, you're, you're talking about the Greeks way back in terms of, of notions of, of other civilizations, other worlds. So how do you see your work as, as that kind of a bridge between those, those uh, foundational roots that take us back that, that you all quite consciously spend a lot of time on and then the immediacy that you're also all trying to get us to resonate with, and we do in all three books. Well, I think for climate change, one of the things I've seen as a public scientist when I talk with people is that there's a lot of the denial, or at least the, the organized denial, is able to play on people's difficulty in understanding you know, this idea of the Earth as a planet. You know, it's hard to sort of wrap your mind around the idea. As um, uh, There's a philosopher who calls climate change a hyper object. It's just so large that like it's very, you know, which people don't have the imaginative tool uh, set to deal with it. And the thing I really wanted to explain to people is that, you know, as I say in the book, you know, not only do I deal with other planets, but I deal with the history of the Earth and that the Earth has worn many masks uh, and that the that there has been, you know, this is not the first time in the history of the Earth that life has, through its success, one particular form of life, through its success, has utterly changed to the, the geochemical, biological functioning of the planet. So the, the Ur example is the blue-green algae. There would be no oxygen in the atmosphere if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, two billion years ago, life figured out how to use water for photosynthesis. And that is what released all the oxygen into the atmosphere for a billion or two billion years the earth had you know it was had an atmosphere there was life on it but there was no oxygen if you landed then and tried to take a breath you would have died so i was trying to show people that look you know climate change is not that hard to understand the idea that we did it is not that hard to understand this has been happening a lot you know over the history and so you know if you cannot if you can sort of uh, uh imbibe and digest that idea maybe it's going to be easier for you to see oh yeah we did this we should have expected this to happen that's the one thing i really wanted people or one of the things i wanted people to get from the book because then you're in a much better position to say like okay now we got to be smart and figure out you know what to do about it so uh, one of the things about working on a book for a long time is that the context for the book changed as i wrote it and i wasn't thinking about equifax and cambridge analytica and data breaches actually when uh, the first kernel of this book came to me came from a very different source and a, i think a different moment in our privacy discussions in public my book came out I think it was the same week or right around uh, the same moment as Cambridge Analytica broke. <laughs> and people kept saying, what a timely book, you know, but it wasn't timely at all. I had been working <laughs> on the book uh, for nearly a decade, really. But the advantage of that was that I think I didn't write the book to explain Cambridge Analytica. I wrote the book to try to get inside much longer trajectories that have, uh, I suppose, set the stage for our current dilemmas around data, around privacy, around exposure, uh, around leaks. And and, and so forth. So in a way, my object was not to try to explain this present moment, but it was an affirmation that history can help uh, us get to and comprehend our present moment. And just maybe one 
example to make that less abstract is I think many of our current narratives, uh, stories we tell in the news, even in popular books around privacy, is that it's about bad actors. It's about, uh, you know, take your pick. It's about Google or Facebook or the NSA or, or some other agency or person. And what became very clear to me is that is part of the problem, but the larger problem is a, it's a human problem and it's a societal problem about how much of ourselves we want to give over to those who would know us often for very logical and rational ends. Most of the invasions of privacy that we experience today had a, a logic to them that, that many people agreed to and believed in its own domain made sense. What we, I think, didn't understand was the accumulation of all of these different histories and trajectories that have produced the present that we're now in and and can't really get our heads around in a, a similar way, maybe, to the way that we can't get our heads around uh, climate change and, and, and the Anthropocene. So, um, so I'm very happy that this book seems to speak to the present, but it, but I didn't actually quite intend it to speak <laughs> as pointedly to the present as, um, as it may, uh, might, may do. might even have turned out to be more relevant than you wished. The, the, <laughs> yes, that's that right. That's right. And, and in fact, has made me more uh, concerned about privacy in my own life, you know, uh, watching what's happened uh, uh, over the last number of years. Imani? So... I'll, I'll actually take the, the issue of, of Lorraine's sexuality as a way to enter into this point. So what I was thinking about, actually, as you were speaking, is that had she not had a private arena to think about questions around gender and sexuality and race and the way that they intersected in her life and actually enriched her political analysis had she not had the space privately to do that, not only would it never have been done for her, but also she likely would not have had a career because this is a period in which gay and lesbian clubs are still being raided and names are being published in newspapers and it is kind of a career-destroying thing to come out. And what's extraordinary about her is that there's been this sort of ongoing question. I kind of evaded the question, but in some ways is whether or not to out Hansberry is that's what the conversation was. But when you look at her personal archive, there's a folder with the pseudonym she used for same gender loving fiction, Emily Jones, that is maintained in pristine fashion. So it's very clear that there was an effort to save this in a private arena for a time when it could be public and actually do the work that it, it was supposed to do. would have been very easy to, to destroy it if she wanted to destroy it. And, and very obviously, easy. obviously chose not Preserved. to do that. Yes. And some of the pieces actually, so she does, she's written like, she's written, I keep thinking of her in the present, but works that go back to the classical Greek period and talk about issues of race and gender and sexuality then, right? Among the work that she did that is unpublished, Native American themed fiction or a speculative fiction. I mean, there's all these, so she's moving across time and place. So her attention to both history and thinking about the questions, these big questions in very particular contexts, I think is actually sort of instructive for what we're talking about, right? That there is a way that one, you learn from history, but also you can learn across history, right? That there are big human questions that manifest themselves in particular ways at a moment in time. So she resented when people would call A Raisin in the Sun a universal play. She said, no, this is a Chicago play. It's a black Chicago play. But the questions that it raises about home, about aspiration, about the relationship between you know, the desire for wealth and desire for a meaningful life and what it means to be ghetto wise and what it means to transform all those things 
have um, a life far beyond the South Side of Chicago, but they're relevant in the terms of the South Side of Chicago in particular. So I wanted to replicate that in some ways, right? So how do I take her life, the, the particulars of her life, and say, well, what do these questions raise for us today? Let, let me uh, take a couple of questions now from the uh, floor. Amani, you'll, you'll like the fact that this one ends with thank you and congratulations. Yeah. So that's a nice question. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Okay, the, re the rest of it gets harder. Not that much harder. Okay. Um, uh, you mentioned that writing Looking for Lorraine changed your life. Um, how so, and what was the most poignant moment during your research and writing? Oh, wow. I have always wanted to be a writer. Becoming an academic was in some ways a way to still get to write and not have to engage in the full riskiness of yeah. becoming a writer. It was a practical decision for me. And it opened me up to the ability to see myself as someone who could write in a way that connects emotionally and not just intellectually to the reader. And so wanting writing that can get get there. So that is the way it changed my life. And it actually opened me to new audiences of readers because it's the first time that I've been able to talk to people who just love books and ideas and not just, you know, in the, I love academics, but it just is a much right. broader world. So it changed my life and it made me feel as though I could be a writer in a much fuller way. But it was in speaking about the book that I had, what was the most profound moment, which is I gave a talk at a very small library in New York, and it turned out that her best friend from elementary school was in the audience. Oh, oh wow. And she oh, is... Totally un unbeknownst to you. Unbeknownst to me. In her 90s and, you know, sharp and brilliant and gorgeous and what, exactly what you would imagine Lorraine Hansberry's best friend to be like. You know, the affirmation that she gave me and saying you captured her, um, was like unbelievable. I had a similar moment with her cousin, um, who was who lives in D.C., where we both burst into tears. It's it was the connection with the people who knew her very well. That was yeah. Sarah, a, a little more pointed one uh, for you. Um, did your research lead you to raise questions about companies like Ancestry.com and Twenty Three and Me, and the ramifications of DNA gathering? Um, yes. Uh, um, I actually am currently working on a, a grant uh, with colleagues at Vanderbilt University on just these questions. So it certainly propelled me into some of those questions around um, not just uh, genetic material as part of our conceptions, ever shifting conceptions around privacy, but also about the, the many ways in which, um, uh, like other forms of data or information about us, uh, this stuff is being collected, housed, shared, uh, warehoused, sold in ways that are very murky uh, to the person <laughs> that they started with, um, making me think a lot actually about our ideas about ownership, whether we own ourselves and our data and our stories. I mean, many of you will know the, um, the story of the Golden State Killer from a couple years back, the cold case that was cracked, not by discovering that man's own genetic material, but the material that connected him to other people in commercial ancestry sites. And what we you may not know is that many, many cases have already been cracked in the same way in the wake of that case, and we're hearing much less publicity about them. So yes, it's, it's made me think a lot about the responsibility that those companies might have and, and why 
it is that they don't actually have a lot of responsibility to maintain that information in, uh, in very secure fashion. And about, of course, the porousness between law enforcement and commercial outfits and voluntary data giving and not so voluntary data giving in American society right now. And Adam, this will prove to you this is a Phi Beta Kappa audience. Uh, this is a this is from a from a plant. Somebody somebody who actually knows this stuff and therefore is dangerous. Um, uh, questioner wants to know how do you solve the Fermi paradox? Um, if there are advanced civilizations out there, how come we have no sign of them? Well, you know, I just wrote a paper on this. This is a great question. One of the things I'm trying to do in the book is tell the story of how we started thinking seriously about other intelligences, which doesn't really, you know, it's very, you look at the, you know, I go all the way back to the 1700s, but it's not until the late 1950s, really, that the first steps to sort of think scientifically about the possibility of other civilizations occurs. And it occurs in two ways. One is with the, what's called the Drake equation, which I won't go into. Um, uh, but then the other one was the Fermi paradox. And the Fermi paradox came from uh, Enrico Fermi, this uh, uh, story of Enrico Fermi and his friends. He was a great physicist talking about UFOs and they're kind of joking around about it. And then later on at lunch, he suddenly stops and goes, well, where are they? You know, which he really meant, why aren't they here now? So the Fermi paradox is this idea is like, well, you got all these stars and there's, you know, all these places and, you know, if civilizations were common, then why literally, why aren't they here? Like, why haven't they already gotten here? And then, of course, there's the idea that like, well, we've been looking, right? We've been doing all the SETI. Why haven't we found them? So there's really in this paper, we did two things. We first of all distinguished between this sort of version of like listening Fermi paradox versus why aren't they here now? And it turns out the listening part is not even a paradox. We have barely started to look. People have this idea that scientists are always out there with their radio telescopes looking for intelligent life, and there's no money for it. There's no, there's no funding for it. So if the, the number of sort of the space of, of radio dials, you know, of radio stations that we had to look for, if the parameter space, as we call it, is like the ocean, the amount that we've actually searched for right now is a hot tub. So if you looked in a hot tub and didn't find any dolphins, would you say, whoop, that's it. There's yeah, no, no dolphins, dolphins in the ocean, right? <laughs> So that first part is just, there's no, we haven't looked. We haven't even begun to look. The second part actually turns out to be a lot more, a lot more difficult to understand about why, yeah, why aren't they here? It's hard to break the logic of that. It's a short time scale for them to get across. So in this paper, what we did is we actually modeled, you know, we made simulations of a, of a civilization, you know, jumping from one uh, star system to the other. And we found out like, oh, wow, it is really hard. To start, the, the wave of expansion or of settlement crosses the galaxy pretty quickly. But there are a couple of caveats which actually make things interesting. One of which is, well, you don't know when they visited. Like if there was a civilization that visited three billion years ago, would we know? And they lasted a million years, there'd be no evidence. There'd be no, you know, the, the entire surface of the earth has been turned over many times in, you know, a billion years. And then also what we found was that there was actually a reasonable part of parameter space and thinking about, uh, like one thing is we set, sort of had this idea like, oh, they'll just leave their civilization and land wherever. Like they could just come to earth and land and be like, hey, we'll set up shop here. But what if they need to breathe, you know, uh, nitrogen? They need a nitrogen breathing atmosphere or they, or the microbes that we have, you know, they can't tolerate. So it may be that good planets are very hard to find. And when we put that in the models, what we found is that you can actually have big pockets of the galaxy be uninhabited. Even though there would be other civilizations, they were even, you know, a swap and spit, so to speak, um, without, you know, different star systems, that you could have 
large bubbles where there was uh, there was no civilizations, and so we could just live in one of those bubbles. So I don't actually think the Fermi paradox is much of a paradox when you take that into account. Cool. Um, last question of the night, um, and it's another common thread through all of your books, uh, surprisingly enough. Um, truth to tell, on some level, you all wrote about just terrible and terrifying things, right? <laughs> a, a, a brilliant, young, in some ways misunderstood woman whose talents will never fully plumb because she dies at the age of 34. Right. Privacy disappearing even as we think about it, and our whole notion of personhood you know, evaporating in front of our eyes, uh, and climate change in the, the world as we know it disappearing with floods and tornadoes and fires and all sorts of terrible things. And yet, each of you, it seems to me, has written a hopeful book. So last question of the night, um, do you think you've written hopeful books, and what do we and not, I don't mean only hopeful. I mean, they're, they're, they're troubling, perplexing, uh, important works in many ways. But is there a hopeful strand there? Yes, certainly. I mean, with I think one of the things that I wanted to push against was the idea that because Hansberry just lived 34 years, that her life was just tragedy, right? In those 34 years, she accomplished an extraordinary amount. She left a great deal, and she had a... Uh, just a, an unbelievable journey and a beautiful life in many ways. And I guess I, I wanted to sort of give voice to that. We tend to, particularly as Americans, we, we fear death. We avoid, you know, we, we are afraid of tragedy, but tragedy is commonplace. Um, and so how, does, how do I look at the story of her life in a way that allows us actually to be, to make peace with the fact of tragedy and also, um, the beauty that exists persists nevertheless. It is a hopeful book, and I also was sort of hopeful that she would be re-engaged and re-embraced, and that would be good for all of us. Um, I uh, found in writing about privacy that there, uh, actually pretty early on, that there were certain kinds of stories out there about privacy, and I'm sure many of you know them and, and maybe even have said them, <laughs> uh, that privacy is over, the kids today don't care about it, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, if we ever had it, it's it's gone or it's, it's uh, about to be extinct. And that didn't seem right to me, either from uh, daily interactions or from the sheer uh, volume of privacy talk uh, in evidence everywhere. And it gave me the idea that what was important to track was not maybe whether privacy, if you even could track this, was uh, you know increasing or decreasing. But the thing to pay attention to was when uh, and where privacy was being talked about and how that came about across a fairly long period of time, not billions of years, but a pretty long hot time for a historian. <laughs> um, and, uh, and what became clear to me was that there has been in this process of shape shifting around uh, what privacy means, a, a deep investment, a kind of humanistic investment in what privacy is and can be. So yeah, I, I think the story of privacy is not at all over, uh, despite the claims. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. You know, there's a way in which the story we tell about climate change is, and I talk about this a lot, this idea of like, oh, human beings suck. You know, we're a virus and the planet can't wait to get rid of us. And that story really really is just like very narrow in its interpretation. And if you look at the history of the planet, you see life doing these amazing things. And sometimes it's gone awry. But like, you know, as I like to say, like, wow, you know, we changed the uh, chemistry of an entire atmosphere, you know, planetary atmosphere, you know, not bad for a bunch of hairless monkeys, you know, I mean, the beauty of looking at other worlds, right? There are 10 billion 
trillion planets in the right place for life to form in the universe. So the idea that we're the first time this has happened, it's like you got to really think that nature is perversely biased against civilizations. So this story's happened before. Like who knows what our story is going to be. And yeah, climate change is an absolute existential threat, but that's really what thinking about other worlds is for, is to realize that somebody's made it through. There's ways through this. There's great hope in this story because you know climate change shows how powerful we've become and if we can marshal ourselves and evolve new behaviors there's literally millions of years in front of us and who knows what we could do so well i have to ask you to join me in expressing our appreciation for our wonderful thank you all for coming have safe trips home we'll look forward to seeing you next year for the 2020 book award dinner good night This podcast is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. Paul Amardo is our sound designer. The field producer on this episode was Ronald Young Jr. Hadley Kelly is the PBK producer on the show. Emma Forbes is our assistant producer. And our theme song is Back to Back by Jan Perchik. To learn more about the work of the Phi Beta Kappa Society and our Visiting Scholar program, please visit pbk.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Fred Lawrence. Until next time. <laughs>